Greetings in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. As always, it's a gift to be with you to open up God's word. And in the world of college life, we're just coming off a fall break, which puts us at the halftime moment of the fall semester. September madness is what I've come to describe the opening month of the academic year. Check out some of these highlights from our fall launch starting out with dealing hundreds of orange and blue t-shirts and rooster mugs on the corner of 10th and college and then to follow the 10th annual root beer kegger three root beer kegs at a mosh pit dance party on pillars lawn and then on to our fall launch for young life college which meets weekly at the campus ministries house in the heart of campus. I'm so grateful that Pillar strives to be a church for the city, which by extension is a church for the college to root on and pray for and walk alongside all the hope students during their four years in college. What an enormous blessing and privilege. So with that, Let's turn to our text for the day, now in the final week of a series that we've been calling There's No Way. There was no way for Abraham, who before he was the father of the faith, had a bit of a rocky start. No way for Joseph, sold into slavery and then thrown into prison. No way for Moses, who came to the edge of the Red Sea. So listen to another There's No Way story. Hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned all the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And then Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and led him through all the land of Canaan, and I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with all that I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. And then I brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And they cried out to the Lord, and when they did that, the Lord put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and he made the sea to come upon them and to cover them. And your eyes saw all that I did in Egypt. And then you lived in the wilderness for a long time, And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession 
of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought with Israel. He sent and invited Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. And so I delivered you out of his hand. And then you went to the other side of the Jordan, and the leaders of Jericho fought with you, with the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hizzites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet out before you and drove them out before you. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built. I gave you vineyards to eat from which you did not plant as well as olive orchards. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Uh, put away the other gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And if it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether it is the gods that your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." And the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who led us up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and who did all those great signs in our sight and who preserved us in all the way that we went among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out all the peoples before us, the Amorites, in whose land we dwell. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, and he is a jealous God. And he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and he will do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to them, you are witnesses that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And the people answered, we are witnesses. And Joshua said to them, put away then the foreign gods and incline your heart to the Lord. And the people answered, we will serve the Lord, the God of Israel, and we will obey the voice of his command. So Joshua made a covenant that day and put in place all the rules and statutes at Shechem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks 
be to God. That's Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 25. Joshua, who received the baton from his great predecessor Moses, is the one who finally led Israel into the promised land. Joshua begins what the Christian tradition calls the former prophets, also including judges, Samuel, and kings, bearing witness to the history of God's dealings from the time of the death of Moses to that of the Babylonian captivity. Moses had led them up from Egypt to the Red Sea and then through the wilderness for 40 years, which included the giving of the law at Sinai. And so this leadership transition between Moses and Joshua is a defining moment in Israel's history. Maybe something like what Duke basketball fans are feeling with Coach K handing off the reins to former player and longtime assistant John Shire. At the conclusion of Deuteronomy, the conclusion of Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then into the opening verses of Joshua, the Lord says this, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to the fathers to give to them. Joshua 24 then offers a kind of capstone for the narrative whole of the book's three main moves. The first part tells of the military conquests under Joshua's leadership. The second focuses on the details of dividing the promised land among Israel's 12 tribes. And the third, what we just heard, Joshua's farewell addressed in final instructions, which crystallize in a covenant renewal at Shechem. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of Joshua 24, just a brief pastoral aside which is this, attending closely to the details of Joshua as a whole can be troubling and even disturbing, especially given the widespread violence and destruction as Israel takes the land. And as mentioned, the first part of Joshua is dedicated to a series of battles and conquests which Joshua 24 then recalls, looking at verse 8, they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and I destroyed them before you. There are major theological and ethical issues at stake which need to be handled with great care and discernment. And if you're curious for resources, I've got them for you as there is a wellspring of Christian reflection and wisdom on these matters. But for now, what I like to highlight is that the spiritual masters who included this book of Joshua and the biblical canon have a thoroughly theocentric worldview. The military victories chronicled in the first part of Joshua and then summarized in Joshua 24 are not chiefly about Israel's might or military prowess. The main character and the main actor of the book of Joshua is, in fact, not Joshua. The main character and the main actor of the book of Joshua 
is God. And that's not meant to resolve all the tough questions surrounding war and violence and bloodshed in the Bible, but it does reframe our focus. In the Bible, the people of God narrate history as the story of God. That is to say, Joshua is a God-centered story. So three things in light of that in this God-centered story that I want to focus on for today. And they are first, that this is a God who fights for his own. Second, that this is a God who keeps his promises. And third, that this is a God who saves. God fights, God keeps his promises, and God saves. So first, I wonder if you noticed all the ways that God fights for his own. God sent Moses and Aaron and led them up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. God made the sea to come upon those mighty chariots and horsemen that pursued them. God led Joshua to the other side of the Jordan as he had at the Red Sea. God's triumph at the walls of Jericho and then defeating the Amorites, which connotes all the tribes of Canaan that arose and fought with Israel. Joshua 24, and by extension, the entire book is about a God who fights for his own. Looking now at verse 12, it was not by your sword or by your bow. And that same God who fought for his chosen people is the same God who fights for you and for me. When I think of great fighters, I think of those GOAT-level athletes, those greatest of all time level athletes, whether it's Tiger Woods or Brady or Michael Jordan. If anyone has seen the ESPN series, The Last Dance, uh, for all of Michael Jordan's flaws, his fight was absolutely compelling. The grit, the grind, the tenacity, his commitment and competitive discipline, all of these qualities well-documented in this must-watch series. And when we see this in human experience, these are like shadows of the real object or like signposts that point us on our way to what we really, truly long for and what Joshua 24 reveals. God, fiercely loyal, stopping at nothing to fight for his own. And I hope that you can hear that today as good news. And it might be worth considering, where do you need God to fight for you in your life right now? Where does it seem like there is no way forward? You or someone you care for facing health struggles, a relationship that's on the rocks, the uncertainty in the economic realm at current, distraught by the state of affairs in the American body politic. It was not by your sword or by your bow. Joshua 24 reveals a God who fights for his own, which leads us to the second point that God is a God who keeps his promises. Looking now at verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities 
which you had not built. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards, which you did not plant. All the way back before Exodus, God promised Moses that he will bring Israel out of affliction to the land of the Canaanites, the land flowing with milk and honey, and it is this very land. Recall that the promise was made before Moses confronted Pharaoh, before the plagues, before the miracle at the sea, and before the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. The promise which began with Abraham that God will bless him and through him that God will bless the nations. The promised land, therefore, would be a sign and seal of God's covenant loyalty to his people. And biblical covenant is designed for the good of God's people and ultimately for the whole world that God so loves. The promise making and promise keeping that implies a two-way street. And so in his final counsel, Joshua gives a covenant ultimatum. Fear the Lord and serve him in integrity and in faithfulness. Choose this day whom you will serve. But what about those times when we don't Hold our end of the bargain when we can't keep our own promises to God. And like any solid leader, Joshua seemed to see that one coming from a mile away. In verse 14, he says, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. Joshua seemed to know that while God keeps his promises always, we will not because we cannot. It calls to mind those classic lines from C.S. Lewis that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is offered by an offer of a holiday at the sea. God keeps his promises, but the tendency of the human heart is to serve other gods. And if we're honest, I think we can recognize that is still our shared reality, the substitute gods we serve in place of the God who fights for us and the God who keeps his promises. Consider this, for example, in a 2011 article on brand loyalty, which I'm sure has only accelerated now a decade later. In a study to consider the effect of super brands such as Apple and Facebook, researchers made an intriguing discovery. When they analyzed the brain activity of product fanatics like members of the Apple cult, they found that Apple products are triggering the same bits of their brain as religious imagery triggers in a person of faith. This is your brain on Apple. It looks like you're worshiping. Isn't that wild to think? Just one instance of the subtle and sinister forms that foreign gods can take in our complex modern technological world. Depravity, said the great Dr. Samuel Johnson, is not easily overcome. 
And yet, even when we don't and even when we can't keep our promises, even when we don't hold our end of the bargain, the book of Joshua bears witness to a God who saves. The third point we're tracking today. And I don't think it's an accident that the name Joshua literally rendered is the Lord is my salvation. Moreover, we should note that the name Joshua in Hebrew translated into first century Aramaic is the name of Jesus. And I think Fleming Rutledge can help us bring it home. She writes, God is for us. He is for us in ways that we can scarcely imagine, indeed could not imagine, if he had not revealed his conquering love in Jesus Christ. When God appears, we are filled with fear, but the fear is instantly removed by the enabling word, fear not. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because the awareness of sin comes only to those who are already standing on the firm ground of salvation. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it cannot come unless God is present with us and God is present for us. The book of Joshua and the whole Bible, for that matter, bears witness to the God who fights for us, the God who keeps his promises, and the God who saves, all accomplished once and for all at Calvary and the conquering love of Jesus Christ. Now from the Apostle Paul, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God fights for us. God keeps his promises. And in spite of our selfishness and greed and idolatry and cruelty and pettiness and on and on, God takes it upon himself to save. To what then do all of these things lead us, wrote the church father Origen. His answer, obviously, that the book does not so much indicate to us the deeds of the Son of None as it represents for us the mysteries of Jesus my Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.